are in the middle of a series on uh, Paul's letter to the Galatian church where he's talking about what it means to be a church, trying to teach them how to be centered on Jesus. And so we're following along with that story. And uh, today we're at an important point. I've been thinking about this uh, as like kind of an analogy that Paul, if you, did anybody ever do running long jump in high school? They still, do they still make you guys do that? We all had to do that. Yeah, okay. So in running long jump, you start from way back, and then you run, and you, they have this, this uh, line, and you step on it, and you launch off. And so the way I've been thinking about it is Paul has basically been running, and today he's going to plant and start to take off. So we want to look back at the run-up that he's had and remind ourselves of the thing excuse me, the things that he said. So he starts off by talking about grace, that this is the most important thing for Paul, that Jesus is this gift to us. It's the same language, gift and grace in the New Testament. And uh, this, the Christ event, that Jesus has come, that he's lived, that he's died, and that he's re- resurrected, that this is a gift to us. And Paul says early on that it releases us, it frees us from the evil and dark forces that hold our world under it the ways that we uh, don't know ourselves, the ways that we break relationship with each other, that we break relationship with God and we break relationship with our world. All of these different things create this dark force and power, and there's a power behind it, but, but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection has freed us from that. And, and for Paul, grace is not just an idea. It's always something that needs to be embodied in our stories. So he goes and he tells us four stories. The first one is about his own life, how grace is embodied in his story and relativizes his story. And then the second story that he told us is about how Paul goes to Jerusalem and he meets with these other Christian leaders. And because all of them have received grace into their stories, that it's relativized their stories and it's embodied in their lives, even though they're coming at the gospel from different places and different ministries, it allows them actually to partner together. Because they've received grace in their own story, it allows them to see grace in each other's story and partner together for the gospel. So he tells us those two positive stories, and then the last couple weeks we've been looking at the third story, which is a negative story that he tells, of a church in a place called Antioch, so not in Galatia, a different place. And what's happened is that this apostle, uh, this, this very important Christian leader named Peter, has gone to this church. And that church at that time, they met in houses, and they would sit together around tables. That's how they would practice the faith and meet together as a church. So Peter, when he arrives, that's what he's doing. He's sitting down with, at all these uh, people's houses, different people from different ethnicities and backgrounds, and, and he's, uh, they're meeting together. But then this Jeru- these leaders from Jerusalem show up, these Jewish leaders. And they say they practice Jewish practices, saying that they're not going to eat with these Gentile believers. And so Peter slowly pulls away and starts only meeting with them. And that influences the church, and a whole bunch of people go with Peter. And Paul writes that behind his actions for Peter is fear. That's what's mobilizing and motivating him to walk away from the fellowship of the entire church. And then we looked at last week how behind that fear for Paul is actually something called idolatry, that Peter has put something else in the middle of his life other than this story, this grace, this gift of Jesus. And because of that, Paul starts to say he's walking out of line with the gospel. And for Paul, this isn't just because he's got some pet peeve or that it's just like a a little problem for him, but Peter's actions are actually causing the church to not look like the church. They're not being this, uh, this faithful representation of a God who pulls people in together by putting Jesus at the center. So that's what we looked at last week. So today, that's, that's been the story so far. Today, we're going to talk about the fourth and final story. So Paul has, like I said, he's been running. Today, he hits with his foot, and he's ready to jump off. Chapter 3, verse 1, he starts with these words. You foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. And here we have classic Paul, just a man of tact and sensitivity. 
No, he, he's not that kind of guy. He said it early on. He's a man that's full of zeal. And I'm not an Enneagram expert, but if you know anything about the Enneagram, I bet anything that Paul is probably an Enneagram 8. Um, he's just like going to emotionally let it fly. He's going to let it shoot first and ask questions later. Now, um, we do not have to take, some of us are turned off by this, Paul does this sometimes, where he, he gets pretty frustrated and angry and it turns us off. We don't all have to become like Paul in this way. We're not all Enneagram 8s, although I hope we have some here. Um, but I do want us to see where he's coming from in this. Paul is, is pretty pissed off because this isn't just a pet peeve of his. And he's not just angry because he set up this church and now it seems to be breaking apart. But for Paul, this church, again, they're not living up to who God has called them to be. They're not being a faithful representation of Jesus in their world because they're breaking apart they're schisming, they're fracturing with each other. And people, real people are being hurt and excluded. And so Paul comes to their defense. And if you know any Enneagram 8s, and I have the privilege of knowing a few, that's one of the best things about them is they come to the defense of their people. And so that's what Paul is doing here. So he says, you foolish Galatians. And then he fires off eight uh, rhetorical questions. So I'm going to read this passage for us. Eight questions in a row. Who has cast a spell on you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or believing by what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the Spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law? Or is it by believing what you heard, just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness? So eight questions in a row that he just rattles off, and I want to boil it down for us just to one today to help us understand where Paul is coming from. He's asking the Galatian church this question, how did you receive the Spirit? Was it by works of the law or was it by faith in Jesus? How did you receive the Spirit? Now, we're, uh, we're coming to the end of this part of our study in Galatians, so we'll go on for about three or four more weeks, and we'll take a break throughout the summer. We're going to do a series on rule of life that Gareth just talked about, talked about some different spiritual practices. We'll have a lot of different people coming in and, and preaching for us. It'll be a lot of fun. And then, and then in September, we'll come back to the second half of the letter to the Galatians. And there, Paul talks a lot about the Spirit. And so we'll really be focusing on who the Spirit is and what he does in the fall. But today, we, we have to look a, a little bit at it to understand the context here. So we need to understand why is the Spirit so important and what is Paul getting at here. And to do that, we're going to go back a little bit in the story of the Bible. And uh, like almost everything, it starts in Genesis 1. That in Genesis 1, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, we see that God wants to dwell with his people. If you remember, we did a series on Genesis 1 uh, about a year ago, and uh, the, the author there is trying to give us actually architectural blueprints in that story. He's saying that God is trying to build this cosmic temple, and it's a place where God can actually come and dwell. So the very first chapter is giving us the idea that God actually really, really wants to be with us. That's one of his, the, the number one themes of the story of the Bible. Yet I think for many of us, when we think of, if I just asked you what the attributes are of God or what God is like, that's not one of the first things that comes to our mind, that God is a God who longs to be with us. And I think one of the reasons for this is because the primary way that we think about God is through a Western legal framework a Western legal framework. I talked about this last week, but I want to mention it again because it is really important. So the, one of the ways, the most, the, the most common ways we think about God is that God is a judge. 
And we are people that come in front of this judge, and of course we're found guilty. We're not perfect. We don't live up to God's standards. So we're, we're going to be in trouble. But Jesus comes in front of us. He takes our place. He takes that punishment that we have. He gives us his righteousness, and we become justified, just as if I'd never sinned. Jesus takes our punishment, and now we're free. And um, there is a truth to this and and a a, a narrative arc that we can trace in the Bible. But the problem of this is, or the outcome of this for us is what I'm concerned with today, that the outcome of that story and the feeling that we get then is like kind of this sense of like, phew, like, thank goodness. I was in deep trouble, and now I'm not. So I'm free to go. I'm free to go. I'm not in trouble anymore in front of this judge. So the picture of God is the God uh, God who judges us. And then the, the feeling that I get on the other side of Jesus is like, I'm free to go. And the problem with the story of the Spirit is it doesn't really make sense of then why do we need the Holy Spirit? Like Jesus kind of did it all, and the story arc doesn't continue on. Now again, I want to say that there is a story arc that we can trace in the Bible there, but there are also many other ones that round out our picture of God and make more sense, I think, of this story. One of them would be uh, the, the, the picture that's painted in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal sons, you may have heard it called. And in that story, God is pictured like a father. So he has two sons. Both of them run away from the father. They turn their back on the relationship with the father. The younger son takes the father's stuff, and he just takes off, turns his back on his dad, walks away, and goes and spends all of his money. But as he comes back, we see the picture of the father, that the father is waiting for the son. The father runs towards the son. And even before, the son has this elaborate apology that he's going to say, and the father just doesn't let him get one word out, and he just says, come in, come in. Come back into my family. Let's host a huge party for you. This desire to bring the son back into the family. The older son later goes out from this party, and he's not very happy because he's been working for the father his whole life, and he's like, you've never had a party for me. And again, we see the father's heart. He goes out to find this older son, and he says, come, come back into the party. He's a God who's always going out to find us and wants to be with us, to invite us into fellowship with him, invite us into relationship with him, to invite us into the party. That's what this God is like. He wants to be with us. And that changes the narrative slightly. Instead of Jesus allowing us to be free to go, this weight off of our shoulders, it says that Jesus, by inviting us back into the Father's house, is is inviting us to come, to come into relationship with God to be with God, this heart that he's always had. And then the Spirit makes more sense in that story. Why do we need the Spirit? It's because God actually wants to dwell with us. And just like in Genesis 1, we see this picture of a a temple where God can come and dwell. The New Testament picks up on that language and says that we are actually God's temple and that he wants to come and dwell with us by his Spirit. So that's that's the story, and Genesis 1 just points that out in a, in a beautiful way, that God actually wants to be with us. But of course, if you read on just a few more chapters, you'll see that, that the people walk away from God. They walk away from God's Spirit, and so they're expelled from this place that's like the hot spot of God's presence. They're kicked out of uh, the garden. And then the whole Hebrew Scriptures traces the storyline of God trying to be with his people, but God's people always walking away and God being with his people and walking away back and forth. But during this time, some voices are raised. They're called the voices of the prophets. And they tell of this time in the future where something will happen, where God's kingdom will come, and his spirit will rest on his people. There's lots of examples of this, but let me just read one for us from Ezekiel. He says, For I will take you from the nations and gather you from the countries, and I will bring you into your own land, and I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. 
I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. We talked about this last week, this idea of idols. And I will give you a new heart, and I'll put a new spirit within you, and I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will place my spirit within you, cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances, and you will live in the land that I gave to your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. This beautiful picture of this future kingdom that's going to come, and God is going to dwell with his people once again. He's going to put his spirit in them. And when Jesus comes, he picks up on this storyline. In Mark, he says this, the time is fulfilled. This moment has come that all the prophets have talked about, and the kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. Jesus is saying something amazing, that he's, he's initiating this moment where God will dwell with us. And then, of course, Jesus lives he dies, and he's raised from the dead. But right before he leaves, he tells his disciples, just, just wait in Jerusalem, and the Spirit will come on you. So in Acts 2, we see this amazing story where the disciples are in this room, and they're waiting and praying for God's Spirit to come. And then God's Spirit does come on them. They step out to preach the good news, and there's a miraculous thing that happens. As they're preaching the good news in their own language, everybody who's around them, who's, who speaks different languages, hears the gospel in their own language. And it picks up on this idea that we see in Galatians that, that when we put Jesus at the center, it relativizes our culture. And it's a sign, the Spirit is a sign then that the kingdom is here and that Jesus has done what he said he was going to do. He is the one. So that's the storyline of the Bible. And Paul's picking up on all of that when he says, how did you receive the Spirit? How did you get the Spirit? The Galatian church has experienced the Spirit. How did you receive it? Did you receive it by doing works of the law, by obeying the whole uh, Hebrew scriptures and the Torah, or did you receive it by faith in Jesus? Those are the two options. And the Galatian church is not, uh, they're not Jewish. There's not many Jewish people in that church. So they weren't obeying the works of the law. So it's just a rhetorical question. Of course they receive the Spirit by faith in Jesus. But here's the problem. Paul says, now you're going backwards. You received you receive the Spirit by believing in Jesus, and they still believe in Jesus, but now they're trying to keep their status by works of the law. What most uh, historians say, Paul, Paul really doesn't describe exactly what's going on in Galatia, but most historians would say something like this. So Paul set up this church, he preached Jesus to these folks, and then he left, and he went and started a church somewhere else. And what happened is some other missionaries came in after Paul. And they, they were Jewish missionaries, and they said to the, the church in Galatia, you know, Paul, he preached kind of like the 1.0 gospel to you. And, and, and Jesus, of course, is really important, but you have to also obey Torah. You have to become Jewish, basically, if you want to be real people of God. And so they're putting pressure on the Galatian church to do the things that we've already talked about in this series, to, to become circumcised, to eat kosher, for example, and to celebrate a lot of the Jewish uh, holidays and important days and the holy days for them. And so Paul is saying to the Galatian church here the same thing that he's saying to Peter. You started by being centered on Jesus. You put the grace of God in the middle of your community and you, you changed around that. You became a community centered around that message, and you received the Spirit. God's presence was with you. But now you're becoming a bounded set once again. You're putting up these walls that Jesus came to tear down. And for Paul, this is a huge deal. Just like he said to Peter last week, we looked at, that you're walking outside of the gospel, that you're putting grace aside, or, or as he calls him here, he says, you're being fools. You're being fools. Now, so that's the, the history to this kind of, the background to what's going on here. Now, our church, we're not struggling with exactly the same thing. I mean, I don't know everything that's going on here, but I highly doubt that there are 
you know, a big fracture in our church because there are some people who want to eat kosher. I don't think that's really what's happening. But there is a really important word, I think, here, an invitation for us to hear. So I'm going to try to translate what I think the heart of Paul is into our context here today. And I'm going to do this by giving you an example of my own life to start with. So uh, and just tell you a little bit of, of my story. Uh, I grew up in a Christian home, and I grew up in a really small town in northern Alberta. And at the end of high school, I would say I really wanted four things. There was four things I wanted. I wanted to leave that town, number one, most important in my mind. I wanted to make a lot of money, number two. Number three, whatever I did with my life, I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I didn't want to be bored. That was like, I really didn't want my job to be boring. And then fourth, I really wanted to play at the highest level of basketball that I possibly could. Okay, those are the four things I wanted. Now, the NBA would have fulfilled all four of those dreams for me, but turns out they weren't hiring slow point guards from Northern Alberta at the time. So I had the opportunity to go to, uh, to try out for a scholarship at a Div 2 school in the States. So that was kind of the direction that my life was going. But in the middle of my, high, my final year in high school, grade 12 year, a good friend of mine passed away in the middle of the night. He died from heart failure, so he was just sitting like you and I, and then the next day he was gone, I found out in school. And we were friends since we were little kids, and that moment existentially just like wrecked me. And those four things that I really cared about, they started, they moved out of the center of my life, and something else took the place. And, and that, that thing that took the place was this question of like, what am I doing here? And what are we doing here? And I became a bit obsessed with that question. Now, my parents had really wanted me to go to Bible college, and so I thought, well, now that this question is the new important thing in my life, let's do that. Let's go to Bible college for a year, because if anyone can tell you what the point of life is, like, it should be them. I'm hoping that if, and, and I grew up with Jesus, so I thought, like, if this Jesus thing, it's not really working right now, so I need to find out if it can work, and if it, if it doesn't, then I need to put something else in the middle for myself. So I went to Bible college thinking I'd find some answers. I really didn't. I probably came up with more questions than answers. But what I did was I met some people my own age that for them, it was very real that the Spirit was at work in their lives. Their relationship with God was something that mobilized and was at the center for them in a way that it wasn't for me at the time. And, and God, the Spirit was at work within their lives, and they were also pursuing God. And that changed me. Spending time around those kinds of people changed me. And it changed me so much that a year later, I found myself not pursuing, you know, education to get those four things that I wanted or, or my sports career or anything like that. But I found myself overseas in a country as a missionary for a whole year where my job was to tell people about Jesus. And my life had, had really changed. And I look back at that person, like I was like 19 years old at that time, and I look back at that person with kind of two lenses. On one hand, I'm a little bit embarrassed because uh, I was very immature. Not that I'm maybe that much more mature now, but I was very immature and lacked a lot of character. And some of the ways that I tried to share the gospel with people, like I would never do that now. But on the other hand, I look back at that guy and I'm just immensely proud of who I was. That at 19 years old, I would give up on all of those things that were dreams of mine to go and follow Jesus. And I remember moments of that year where just... God just showed up, and he was so close to me, and we trusted him with moments and opportunities, and he just ministered in amazing and beautiful ways. I tell you that story because uh, in pastoring and meeting a lot of people, all of us, or a lot of us, sorry, have, have a similar story to that, where we're, sometime in the past when we were younger, we had this moment where God was really close to us, 
and we were really on fire in our faith, and the Spirit was at work within our lives. But what I observe in my life and in the life of many other people that I talk to is what can happen is that our story arc kind of goes like that, where we had this amazing moment with God, this time maybe in our early teens or, or in our early 20s, and it becomes the high watermark of our faith. And after that, things kind of just taper off. And it's not like we've left the faith. I mean, we're all here, so we still probably believe in some way, shape, or form, but it just kind of dies down. The picture that came to my mind as I was prepping this week is we did some spring cleaning in our house a couple weeks ago, and underneath one of my daughter's beds was a uh, helium balloon that she had from her birthday. So her birthday was in December, and, uh, and now the balloon is under her bed, and, uh, as they do. Um, but it, it's this kind of idea where when we got that helium balloon, it was part of a big celebration. It was floating around. It was at the front of our house. It was an exciting time. But now where's the balloon? Under the bed. Deflated. Forgotten. And I, I think that there's a picture there for some of us of what our faith walk looks like. So how does this happen? I think that's a really important question for us. Why, why do we have these moments where we're so close to God, but as time goes on, we slowly walk away and fade away. I think there's, at least from my perspective, I'll just give you four reasons. The first is that you grow up. We grow up. I'll, I'll tell you of a conversation I had with someone who used to attend our church. They came to our church because they were dating someone here and they wanted to get married. Classic flirt to convert situation. Um, they were a nominal Christian at the time and they met with our pastor, our founding pastor, Chris. And he sat down with uh, our pastor and he said, you know, I'm thinking of marrying this girl. I'm going to ask her to marry me. And our pastor, in classic Chris fashion, first question out of his mouth, are you looking at porn? <laughs> I know, right? If you met him, you, 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 get, you get what's going on there. And, and this guy kind of like stumbled over his words. He's like, ah, I mean, well, no. And then Chris said, you are. And if you are, I will never recommend that you marry this woman. You don't deserve her. And he said this moment for him was like getting hit by a two-by-four with the gospel, which is probably Chris's best skill. I don't know if it's on his resume. But it was this, this moment that actually caused a pivot point for him, that he had a realization, hey, I've got one of two ways to go here, and this is becoming very real, and I've just been playing with Jesus in my life. I need to take God seriously. And it changed him in his life, and he, be, he married this woman, and then we were chatting about 10 years later. He's in his 30s. And he comes and he talks to me and he said, like, hey, I'm stuck. I'm stuck in my faith. And I'm, the problem is I know I don't need the two-by-four again. Like, I'm a more mature person and God has changed me over those 10 years, but I'm feeling stuck. He's like, I'm not coming to you that you're going to uncover some secret sin. Like, I'm going to be like, you have a gambling addiction, don't you? And he'd be like, oh, yes, and just like break down and crying. He's like, I know that that's not what's going on in my life. Um, I don't need someone, he used the words, he said, I don't need someone to yell me awake anymore. In fact, I'm quite, you know, off-put by those things now, but I am complacent. I'm stuck. And so we do grow up, and I think that's, that's a really good thing, but it can also be a place of, of complacency. And, you know, God doesn't always speak with a two-by-four, and praise God for that. It's, those are not usually very fun experiences in my own personal experiences, but my concern is that we use maturity to cover up complacency in our lives. And we just become people who are less passionate about Jesus. And we settle and we stop listening to God's Holy Spirit in our lives. So we grow up. The second is that we have more to lose. There's this beautiful story in the gospel that you probably know. Uh, it's of the rich young ruler. So this guy comes to Jesus and he says to him, 
God, what do I have to do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus says, well, you know the Torah, you know all the rules there, just do all those things. And the guy says, I've been doing that ever since I was a kid. And one of the best lines in the Bible, it says, Jesus looked at him with love, with love, and he said to him, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. Now, when, when we read that when we're younger, we were, we were, at least for me, it's like, oh, I don't want to be like that. I don't want to be that guy. I want to give it all to Jesus. So it's like, you know, you, you, you kneel down beside your bed and you're just like, Lord, take everything that I have. Take my futon, Lord. I got, I got $137 in the checkings and I got 40 in the savings. Lord, you can, hands open to you. And Lord, about $30,000 in student loans. You, Lord, if you want, it's all, God, I give it all to you. And this is our experience when we're younger. But, but what happens when we're making a household income of, of 100K, 150, 200, 250K, whatever it is in your home? We're not playing with monopoly money anymore. And it becomes much harder to open our hands to God. There's much more to lose. You know, it's easy for me to say yes to God and that story of mine when I was single. All I had, no obligations, I had no money, I had nothing really to give up. I could just move overseas. Now my story is a lot different. I have more to lose. I have more to consider in my story. The third reason is the gravitational pull of middle-class life. Uh, If you've been around here, you know that I harp on this quite often, so I'm just going to be quick. First of all, I want to say there's nothing wrong with being middle-class. God, God, the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of Paul show that people from every class have a place in the family of God. But I I harp on this in our community and in our society because it's very dangerous for us, this gravitational pull that we have towards the middle-class life because it becomes something that becomes a baseline for us, that I deserve this kind of, this standard of living. And therefore, when God asks us to do something that's going to dip below, we're not even open to it. We can't even fathom that that might be God asking us to do something like that. And then we have no choice but to put God in the back seats of our cars as we drive towards our real vision of the good life, our idols. And we do so with a Jesus is the co-pilot, you know, license plate. And which is a nice thing to say, I guess. But maybe Jesus is in the back seat of the car and he's like, hey, who says you get a plane? I'm not Oprah. I'm not just handing out planes here. Who says you even get a car? Our middle-class lives, for us, chasing that middle-class dream can eclipse a passion for God. It's a real danger in our society and in our community. And I'm not talking just about you. This is me. This is, this is us. So that's the third reason. The fourth reason is this, because our sins become more acceptable. Our sins become more acceptable. In a few chapters, Paul is going to talk about a list of things. He's going to say, these are things characterize people who have the Spirit of God in them, and then these things characterize, do not characterize people who have the Spirit of God in them. So we'll look at it in more detail in a couple months, but let me read it for you from Galatians 5. He says, Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. Quite the list. I'm warning you about these things as I warned you before that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Remember the rich young ruler's question, how can I inherit the kingdom of God? Paul says not by practicing these things. So what do we do when we hear this list? I think the thing that we do most often is we break it down into two groups. 
So we go through and we like sexual immorality. Well, that's bad. I mean, well, it depends exactly what Paul's talking about. So, you know, it's generally bad. Moral impurity, well, we know that's bad. Promiscuity, definitely bad. Idolatry, we learned last week that that's bad, right? Right, students? Okay. Sorcery, definitely bad. No Harry Potter. Hatreds, well, I mean, it depends probably on who you hate, I guess. Strife, we all have a little strife. Jealousy, yeah, maybe. I don't know. We'll, we'll skip that one. Outbursts of anger only happens on Thursdays. Selfish ambitions, well, we all, we all have a little bit of that. Like, you have to be selfish to get ahead. Dissensions, factions, probably depends. You know, you don't want to be around certain kinds of people. Envy, that's uh, a tough Oh, drunkenness, that's bad. Let's put that, that's a bad one. Carousing, don't know what it means. Sounds a lot like dancing, for that's probably bad. <laughs> and similar things. And, and so we go through the list like that in our heads, probably never out loud, but then we end up with something like this. And praise God, the people who are on the inside, the, the ones on the outside, we are not those people. We make sure that people like that don't exist here. But, but the stuff on the inside, I mean, that's kind of, we, we all just struggle, right? We're human. And so we all struggle. And, on, and what we've done is we've just back in a classic bounded set situation where we've taken this list from the Bible and we've made certain sins really unacceptable, and then some of them are okay, because we just all deal with them. They're all problems for us. And this is where we're in trouble, and this is exactly where we dovetail with what Paul is on about in the Galatian church. That that's where they found themselves. They've put boundaries back up again. And for Paul, this is a big deal, because you're, we're leaving behind the gospel. We're actually working against the gospel and walking and leaving grace behind. Now, I want to say this again. I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again this week. I am not trying to be mean, or I'm not trying to go after certain people in our community by saying these types of things. I'm trying to mimic what Paul is saying in this passage. And more importantly than that, I'm trying to mimic his desire, his heart behind, what I understand his heart to be behind why he's saying what he's saying. You know, for Paul, we can end up settling to be just a nice group of people who meet together for a nice service and probably just don't drink as much as our neighbors or sleep around as much as our neighbors. But Paul thinks that Jesus actually has something more for us, that we could be a place where the God of the universe dwells. We can be a receptacle of the gift of the Son of God. We can be a group of people mobilized by the Holy Spirit. And for him, that's, it. that's what's at stake when we do things like this and we don't let grace fully take root. We close places off in our life to the grace of Jesus. So what can we do? Two verses, let's, we'll close with this. Remember Paul said last week to Peter, you're walking out of line with the gospel. Well, later on in Galatians, he says this, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. This whole list. He says, walk by the Spirit. This is the practice that he encourages us to do. The Spirit that you received by the grace of Jesus, learn to walk in step with the Spirit, to listen, to obey, to be in step with the rhythms of God in your life. And the second part is, is very important for us to hear, which is what Paul said last week. I'm just going to repeat it again. He says, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the second part of the equation, that we listen to the Spirit, and the second is that we're willing to die in order to rise and become new people.
to have the life of Christ take place in our lives. So if I was to encapsulate what he's saying here in one sentence, I'd say it this way. Listen to how the Spirit is calling you to die so that the life of Christ might actually shine through you. Listen to how the Spirit is calling you to die so that the life of Christ may shine through you. Now, this may be a little bit conceptual. Let me just try to give you another example from my own life again of how um, I'm, I'm trying to practice doing this. So environmental stewardship is an area that the Spirit has convicted me of in recent times in my own life. Um, so I became more attuned to this part of the story of the Bible that God actually really cares about this world. We looked at this just recently in Genesis 1. If this place is a temple and God's created us and he's asked us to partner with him, then it's probably pretty important how we take care of this place. And um, so I, I came deeply convicted that I was not stewarding it well. Uh, during university... Well, I grew up in northern Alberta, and all the stereotypes you think of right now are exactly correct. And then secondly, during university, I worked in the oil and gas industry, and I actually had no clue that I could be doing some environmental harm at that time. But I've done my fair share, is what I'm trying to say. At the time, I was also serving as a Christian leader in an organization, and I was flying all over the world and all over Canada, just flying a lot. And, and this became this, this area of dissonance in my life, that God was calling me towards a... Uh, uh, you know, being stewarding the environment well, but then this part of this was part of my history, and even flying a lot, currently. So that was the what the spirit was telling me to do. And then the second part I realized is that God had given Sarah and I something that my neighbors didn't have. See, all of my neighbors care a lot about environmental justice. I'm sure yours do too, but they don't aren't willing generally to sacrifice for it. I would say. So if if my friends have a choice between a larger space or caring for the environment they will choose the larger space almost every single time. But we, we have a different story. See, middle-class Christianity asks, what, what extra do I have to give? What excess do I have to give out of? But Jesus-centered Christianity asks a different question. Where am I called to die so that Christ may shine through us? So since that time, talking it over with my wife, we've tried every year to try to do something different, to live in, in line with what we feel like God is calling us to do. So one year we moved into high-density living, uh, one year, we've tried to purchase uh, a lot more glass than plastic, because of what I understand, that's better. Uh, I've stopped buying new clothes, so I try to buy only uh, used clothes, except for, except for socks and underwear, because that is, that is my line of grace right there. I'm not going to go beyond that one. And then one of the things that we've become best known for, ironically, is that we don't have a car. So we got rid of our car. And there's, I'll say there's at least two reasons for this. One is the environmental stewardship, and the other is that it helps us stay in the city. That's something that God has called our family to do, is to live in this crazy, expensive city. And so it does help us and allows us to stay here. But it is a sacrifice for, for us, and I would say especially for me. I grew up in a place where everybody had a car, and especially when we got rid of it, it was really hard. And it still is really hard to ask people for a ride. It's quite a humbling experience. But here's what I found. As I've done that, and, and so many here, people here have given me and my family rides, I've had the chance to just get to know you a lot more, to sit in a car and to talk and receive grace from you, receive ministry from you. And I've found, too, it's a very humbling for me to ask. I play hockey with these, like, 20-year-old guys, and I have to ask them to come out of their way and come pick me up, this old geezer for, for uh, our hockey. And I get in the car, and I'm always like, thanks for the ride, man, and they're like, yeah, no worries don't you have, like, kids and stuff? I'm like, yeah, we have three kids, and they're just like, holy crap, except they don't say holy crap. And then they're like, I can't believe you live without a car. 
And I'll say to them, that's, yeah, it's, it's kind of it's crazy, but it's part of our spiritual practice. And I remember one conversation spiritually, they, they're specifically, sorry, they all lead to interesting conversations, but one of them specifically that stands out in my mind where he almost stopped the car and he looked at me and he just said, what did you say? He said, it's part of my spiritual practice. And he's like, what does that even mean? And I said, well, for, for me and for our, my family, we try to live not just by convenience, but by passion and sacrifice to live into the big story of God. And he just said to me, I've never heard anything like that before in my life. And we have ended up having so many good conversations and openness in his life because of that moment. Now, the story about me is over. Everybody in this room does not need to sell their car. I just want to say that. that is, if, any, if I ever stand up here and tell you that, that's cult behavior. If I'm like, you need to sell your car, we're all going to get white Nikes and drink this Kool-Aid and no one's going to ask any questions, okay? That's cult behavior. And also, maybe most importantly to me, if everybody sells their car, who's going to drive me to golf? That is also part of my spiritual rhythms, okay? And it's very important to me. And also, this is not a competition. That's not what I'm, I'm on about here. It's not about how much me and my family have done and how little you and your family have done. It's not bounded set. And the environment is not our God. I do not become more righteous as I move closer to, you know, carbon zero in my life. And I'm not trying to shame anyone who's living differently. The Spirit is going to call all of us in different areas of our lives. But it's about a direction. It's about a direction. It's about listening to the Spirit. Where, God, are you calling and convicting me in my life right now? Where are you drawing me to become a new person who looks like Jesus? And then being willing to sacrifice and go there. Not just stopping at your convenience, but, but taking this dying and rising path of Jesus to live in his story and reflect his light into a dark world. And I'll tell you this, I only share that story with you because it is one of many stories in this community of people who are doing exactly the same. Some of you in this community, community have stepped out to foster and adopt. It's a, it's a way that you've listened to the Spirit and sacrificed. You know, that was part, my wife and I really wanted to do that. Uh, Sarah actually found out that she was pregnant with our youngest daughter, Nora, at an adoption conference. And there's been times where we felt shamed about that because we wanted to participate in it. But we're so grateful that we can be part of a community of people who do. It's not going to be every single one of our stories. But by God's grace, we can be part of a family where God is calling some people to do that. And the rest of us can sacrificially walk along with you, support you, pray for you, financially support you in that process. There's other people in here who work with inner city youth and families with our partner ministry, Inner Hope. I get the privilege of hanging out with these guys about once a month, and every time I do, I walk away from that time, and I'm like, man, they're doing such great stuff. I wish I could do that. But that's not what God has called me to right now in my life, and it's not a competition. But I'm so honored and grateful that I get to be in a family with you and help hopefully support you in that way, sacrificially. There's people in our community who are sacrificially single, that's not my story. That ship has 100% sailed for me. But I know some of you in your stories, and, and you're saying, I will not date someone who's not a Christian, and there's not any options for me here. And that's a sacrifice for you. And I'm so grateful for you here. You know, in, in a culture like ours that's just relationships and sex crazed, for you, if you walk a different path, that sacrificial path of following Jesus, you're like a modern-day saint in my mind. And I'm so honored and grateful that I get to be in a family with you. And here's what happens when we're a community of people who do this, who listen to the Spirit and are willing to sacrifice, 
willing to sacrifice to die and rise, we become a community of these stories, a community of embodied grace. And people will take notice. People will take notice. Not because we're just awesome or because, you know, we have the best Sunday service with lasers and smoke machines, but because we're people who are living in this Genesis 1 reality, that we are living in the presence of God as reflective mirrors that reflect the goodness and glory of God into the world of a new way to be human. I'll close with this last story. Uh, my wife's dad told it to me. It was, it was a story of, of a church service, a lot like this, small church. And uh, after the first few songs, um, the pastor came up and he said, you know, I'm going to introduce somebody to you. I want you to hear his story and his testimony because it's a really beautiful one and I want him to share it with you. So why don't you come up? So a guy stands up from the back. He's really well dressed. He walks up to the front. He grabs the mic and he says, thank you. You know, a couple of years ago, I walked into this church and uh, I was just, I'd hit rock bottom. I was in addiction. A uh, long time relationship had blown up. I'd lost my job and I, I really didn't know what to do. So I came to church and I thought, if this might be the last place for me. If I can find some hope here, I won't end it all. And on that day, I remember sitting at the back, and somebody came up to the front, and they said, well, we need a bit of money uh, for this one person. We're trying to send this missionary uh, into the world. And so we ask you to consider giving generously and sacrificially towards uh, this ministry. And he said, at that time, I only had $20 left to my name. I had $20 in my wallet. And they passed out uh, the plate, the offering plate. And as it made its way to the back, I just had this argument with God back and forth. I'll give the $20. Uh, no, I won't. I can't. I can't. And the plate finally reached me, and I took the $20 out of my wallet, and I put it in the plate with shaking hands. And I said, God, this is all I have left. I give it to you. Do with it what you will. And at the, from that moment, my life has completely changed. I met with your pastor later that day, and he started discipling me. I, I'm in a, you know addictions program, and I've been clean and sober for a few years. I'm in a relationship uh, I got married, and I have kids, and, and now I have this uh, business that I'm running, and it's doing really well. But I just want to say thank you to this community and, and just give all the glory to God for what he's done in my life. So he puts the mic down. The people applaud. He walks back to the back of his seat. And as he sits down, and the next song starts to play, an old woman leans up from behind and says, I dare you to do it again. And he said, What? And she said, I dare you to do it again because maybe God's not done with you. You know, we have two ways, two paths of living in the world. One is of settling. And we'll be a nice church full of really wonderful, nice people that I have the privilege of calling friends. And we'll do an okay service. Maybe here. Maybe in a church with red carpets. We'll see what the Lord calls us to. That's the path of settling. Or we have another one, which is the path of shining we become a people who listen to the Holy Spirit in our lives and follow the path of Jesus of dying and rising to become a group of people who shine out into the world the glory of a risen Savior. Which will we choose? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It is a challenging one for us today. For me, too. I'm, I'm not just talking about other people here. I, I confess it is for me as well. We thank you for Christ. We thank you that you have come, that you have given yourself fully and wholeheartedly for us. So may we fall in love with you, may we worship you, and may we not settle. 
for the areas in our lives where I know there's people here right now that are in the middle of places where you've called them by your spirit that are really hard places. So would you give them your grace? Would you teach us how to come around them? And for the rest of us who might be in a place where we're just settling, where the desire to become like you and look like you has been eclipsed by something else, God, forgive us. And by your grace, would you just show us those places that we may continue on the path of worshiping you and becoming like you. And, and beyond anything, God, we want to be a group of people that radiates out your glory, that looks different, not, not so we can take the glory for ourselves, but that people that we know, that we love, that our neighbors, that our friends and our families might actually encounter you, the living God in your spirit. So would you have your way with us as we respond in prayer? Would you lead and guide us? Spirit, we welcome you during this time. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.